Hey everybody and welcome to the 5 Bytes Podcast. I'm your host, Rory Monahan. The podcast, as always, is brought to you by my sponsors. Policy Pack Software, now part of Netrix, where you use Group Policy or MDM to remove admin rights, manage and lockdown applications, Java, browsers, and mitigate ransomware, plus more. And also brought to you by ControlUp. End-to-end digital experience management for the work-from-anywhere era. Control up. Happy users, happy IT. And of course, also brought to you by Liquidware, the innovator in adaptive workspace management solutions. If you enjoy the show each week, you have these awesome sponsors to thank. And now for some news. The first story was brought to my attention by Ulf Lund, who highlighted the potential for KB5012170 of this month's patches from Microsoft for Patch Tuesday to result in prompts for a machine's BitLocker recovery key, which of course enterprise users don't tend to have ready access to themselves. So if you use BitLocker in your organization, you will know this isn't a minor issue as the recovery keys are obscenely long by design. If this happened to even a small percentage of machines in a large enterprise, it would have the potential to completely clog the help desk. This patch was highlighted over a week ago, just after I scripted last week's episode of the podcast by the awesome Susan Bradley as being a potential banana skin. And that's a really good tip. I've mentioned it multiple times on the podcast, but there is a patch management Google mail group that you can join and you get a lot of this great information from such a wide group of techies all sharing information and issues they run into with patches. Now I should say not everyone who uses BitLocker and deployed the patch has experienced this issue. The Microsoft advisory for this update suggests disabling BitLocker and Credential Guard while you're deploying the update. I want to say that is not uncommon as some applications with drivers or applications that maybe change low-level system components may require you to disable something like BitLocker. But actually, really in my experience at least, these types of apps are few and far between. So it is kind of uncommon for you to have to go through this process. Admins may not have realized that a patch could even result in a BitLocker recovery prompt like this. Usually, you know, when you get them, it might be a hardware change made to a machine without disabling BitLocker first, or possibly leaving some bootable media on the PC and BitLocker prompts because it's trying to protect the drive. It is unclear whether the note about disabling BitLocker in the advisory was originally there. I guess this is what a staggered patching method is for though, right? And I covered this story the same week a Microsoft security team member was on social media advocating for an aggressive approach to patching. In an ideal world, certainly everyone would patch or at least try to patch 100% of their organization within two weeks. But in an ideal world, patches wouldn't break things every month either. So the crux of this one, If you use BitLocker in your environment and you haven't pushed the August patches widely yet and you're not accounting for disabling BitLocker or if you're using Credential Guard 2, maybe disabling that before deploying this patch, 
may want to hit the brakes a little bit and try to re-strategize and figure out the best way to handle this patch. In another tale of woes from the recent Patch Tuesday patches, BleepyComputer.com reports that Microsoft have pulled the Microsoft 365 version 2206 update after users reported their Office applications were crashing when viewing a contact card or hovering over a user's name or photo. It said that when attempting to open a user's contact card or hover over their name or pictures in emails, comments, or shared documents, the applications could crash with a 0xc 0000005 error or a 0000374 exception error. It has been reported that those experiencing the issues can roll back to Microsoft 365 version 2205 via the Microsoft Admin Center. And speaking of 365, Earlier this week, Microsoft 365 experienced an outage, which was blocking users from connecting to Exchange Online, Microsoft Teams, Outlook desktop clients, and OneDrive for Business. The incident only affected EMEA, apparently. However, users had been reporting server connection issues and sign-in failures worldwide. At the time of this recording, they said the likely culprit is a Cisco Merakai Firewall Intrusion Detection and Prevention false positive blocking Microsoft 365 connections with Microsoft Windows IIS denial of service attempt alerts. So this is interesting because I think this is the second time in three weeks that a third party to Microsoft's firewall protection solution was blocking traffic involving Microsoft cloud hosted services. Certainly a worrying trend and hopefully this is something they can get to the bottom of quickly before it becomes even more frequent. And speaking of Microsoft and Cisco, I was about that for a segue. Thanks to Sean Harry for this next story. He noted that Microsoft Teams direct guest join with Cisco WebEx on Microsoft Teams meeting rooms for Android has been announced. Users will be able to schedule new Cisco WebEx meetings or forward existing meetings to a Teams room, kind of making this Teams meetings room app like a central space for multiple different types of meetings, which I think makes sense because even if your organization uses Teams internally, you may get invited to a Zoom meeting, a WebEx meeting, or what have you by someone outside your company. I have to say though, when I saw this, it did stop me in my tracks because while I didn't really care that much about it as a feature, it's very interesting to me that a Microsoft Teams competitor in Cisco WebEx is now partnering with Microsoft Teams, even if it is just for this Rooms feature. To me, at least, it seems like a big deal. I think it makes a lot of sense because it seems like it's kind of a two horse race right now between Microsoft Teams and Zoom and playing in the enterprise as Cisco does, perhaps it makes a lot of sense for them to kind of partner up on some things. Before I move away from Cisco, last week being Patch Tuesday, as I always do that time of the month, I went through some updates you should be aware of and stated the obvious that vendors other than Microsoft have also released patches. Well, I feel I should specifically highlight patches for a high severity vulnerability affecting Cisco adaptive security appliance software 
and Cisco's Firepower Threat Defense software. The issue is assigned CVE-2022-20866 and rates as a 7.4 out of 10 on the severity scale. It has been described as a logic error when handling RSA keys on devices running the Cisco ASA or Cisco FTD software. It said successful exploitation of the flaw could allow an attacker to retrieve RSA private keys by means of a Lenstra side channel attack against a targeted device. The Hacker News article that I'm referring for this story has a lot more information about, about other vulnerabilities disclosed in Cisco products and patched this month. And if you want full information, I'll share a link to that with this episode, which you'll find at fivebytespodcast.com under reference links for episode 243. Google also patched a zero-day and 11 security flaws in Chrome this month. Sophos reports the zero-day bug as CVE-2022-2856, and it has simply been described with, quote, insufficient validation of untrusted input in intents, end quote. And they go on to explain a Chrome intent is a mechanism for triggering apps directly from a web page in which data on the web page is fed into an external app that's launched to process that data. So in typical Google fashion, they hold their cards close to their chest. They do not disclose many details publicly about these vulnerabilities that they fix. But maybe you could draw your own conclusion on this one, the fact that it's a mechanism for triggering apps directly from a web page. Perhaps someone was able to get a Chrome intent to trigger an app that's running malware. That's just a guess on my part. Sysdig.com has reported that Kubernetes version 1.25 is about to be released. They report that this release brings 40 enhancements or changes. Sysdig suggests the highlight in this release is the removal of the pod security policies feature with that now being replaced with pod security admission feature instead. And that pod security admission feature has been in the graduating phase for a while and now it moves on to the stable release. There are also some other security related new features like support for user namespaces, checkpoints for forensic analysis, improvements in the SE Linux when mounting volumes, node expansion secrets, and improvements to the official CVE feed for reporting vulnerabilities, I guess. Other features include non-retriable pod failures, KMS version 2 improvements, a cleaner IP tables chain ownership, and better handling of the storage class defaults on PVCs. They also specifically called out a feature called CSI migration, which is a process they say has been going on for more than three years. And it's only just now finally getting moved into this final stages, making its way to a stable release. They stated there's also port ranges for network policies, ephemeral volumes, and support for C groups version two. The ephemeral volume sounds pretty interesting. So all welcome new enhancements to Kubernetes and this is really just scratching the surface. Sysdig did a really, really good job and went into painstaking detail on all of these new features. So if you want to deep dive on that, I'll share a link to their article with this episode. 
The awesome security expert Patrick Wardle was back last weekend at DEF CON in Las Vegas, where he disclosed an unpatched vulnerability in Zoom for Mac OS. In this vulnerability, an auto-update feature in Zoom that runs frequently in the background could be leveraged to run malware. The product apparently does not validate what it is running as part of that update process and just indiscriminately runs any installer with the same name. So essentially you could just create your own malware, use the same name for the executable that Zoom is expecting to run as part of the auto update and it will run it for you. Patrick said he went through the correct channels by informing Zoom. Unfortunately, their initial fix contained another bug that meant the vulnerability was still exploitable in a slightly more roundabout way. So he disclosed the second bug to Zoom and waited about eight months before publishing his research. And this obviously, <laughs> it being able to run whatever you want, that has the potential to do pretty much anything. You could grab root access on a Mac with this potential loophole for yourself. Patrick said he went public at DEF CON with this, hoping that it would grease the wheels a little bit and get them moving on a comprehensive fix. Well, SiliconRepublic.com has now reported that since that disclosure, Zoom has issued a new patch. Now, I think this would be the third time at least in terms of them is trying to issue a fix for this type of vulnerability. And previously, those patches didn't fully patch the problem. So I guess we'll have to wait and see if they got it fully unlocked this time. And speaking of Apple insecurity, though, that one was Zoom on macOS, not necessarily Apple directly. Uh, but securityweek.com reported that just this Wednesday, Apple released emergency patches for a pair of already exploited zero-day vulnerabilities in macOS and iOS platforms. And this one is becoming quite a hot story. It's developing fast. Um, as I said, Apple has confirmed these are already being exploited and there are multiple stories out there and accounts from people who fell victim to attackers leveraging these zero-day vulnerabilities. So if you've got an iPhone, iPad, and macOS, and you're pretty diligent at patching those and you think you're fully patched, might wanna go and check again because if you go to your settings, general, software updates, you'll probably see that there's now a pending patch because they just released them this Wednesday. These vulnerabilities are CVE-2022-32894, which is related to the kernel, and an application with this one may be able to execute arbitrary code with kernel privileges. The other is CVE-2022-32893, which is WebKit related. And with this one, processing maliciously crafted web content may lead to an arbitrary code execution. These patches are available via macOS Monterey 12.5.1, iOS 15.6.1, and iPadOS 15.61. Apple at this time have not released any details on the live exploitations themselves or any indicators of compromise to help defenders look for signs of infections. But again, this is a quickly developing story that may change very soon. So to wrap up this week's news, let's cover some quick hit stories. Sander Berkeware reported this week that Azure AD Connect version 2.1.16.0 enables automatic upgrades for the Azure AD Connect application. 
This comes after a previous version was said to introduce this type of auto update feature, but it ended up having issues. So it appears the auto update feature for AD Connect is now ready and in prime time. Microsoft Power Toys is getting a new utility called Power OCR that lets you select text in an image and copy it directly to the Windows clipboard. If you think, well, this doesn't sound all that useful, I promise you it will be useful. This feature is already available natively on iPhones today just through their uh, photo preview application. And it's something that I sorely miss when I try to switch to another type of device. The Power OCR pull request shows that the utility is almost complete with the project currently being reviewed and finalized with the help of another software developer and a Microsoft employee, according to bleepycomputer.com. And on Power Toys, I saw that Clint Rutkus on Twitter was asking people to provide feedback on the possibility of Mouse Without Borders being introduced to Power Toys. So if that's something you love and you're passionate about and you think it should be in Power Toys, reach out to Clint. Ubuntu version 2.2.0.4 has been released and on a previous episode of the podcast, I reported that it got delayed by a week. But in this version of Ubuntu, there's now a native support for .NET 6 and admins can install it via a sudo apt install .NET 6 command, and that's D-O-T-N-E-T 6. Now, .NET has been available for Linux distros for a while, but with this release, installing .NET has become even simpler. Also announced was a joint open container initiative for the Linux platform and partnered with Microsoft, where it reads like they're going to be providing the ability to spin up ASP.NET and .NET containers for Linux. So if you're developing with .NET for your Linux applications, you'll be able to actually create container images and have those .NET applications run as containers on Linux. So it actually sounds like a nice feature, nice win. ZDNet this week reported that Microsoft's DevBox service, a service that I covered on a previous episode of the podcast in which lets developers use pre-configured developer workstations in the cloud, is now available to all interested testers. Under the covers, it reports DevBox runs on the Azure Virtual Desktop service and can be managed alongside Windows 365 cloud PCs using Microsoft Endpoint Manager. Interestingly, the article states that Microsoft has not mentioned anything about how much this is going to cost when it's available. And I think that would be pretty interesting because I'd love to compare, you know, what's the cost of this, which is presumably a high-end cloud PC for developers to use versus the high-end desktops or cloud PCs that are available today via the enterprise and business SKUs. It's kind of pricey, in my opinion, for the high-spec machines with those SKUs. So how is it going to be made affordable and attractive to developers? I guess we'll wait and see. This week, Microsoft announced some improvements for Azure Virtual Desktop users with Windows 11 version 2.2H2 and Universal Print. They say that printers are installed as part of the user profile now, so it's per user instead of per machine, which is kind of the way things should be going anyway, I think, with 
people being able to roam across multiple virtual machines, running an Azure virtual desktop, running on physical endpoints, kind of makes sense now to target the user more than it ever did before. Uh, also, you'll have the ability for printers to roam with user profiles, including when you're using something like FSLogix. Uh, there will also be location-based printer search for the local device location. So that's kind of interesting. So, you know, when you go search for a printer within the devices and printers menu, well, administrators can configure location services so that printer search will find printers based on the location of the device that the person is connecting from now. Speaking of Windows 11 22H2, another nice segue. Uh, several sources, including Ars Technica, have reported that this is set to be made public on September 20th, so just around the corner. Windows 11 22H2 was covered by me on the podcast, I think in pretty good detail a couple of months ago, but for those who missed it, this version is said to include a few new security features like default settings for existing features are changing to be more hardened than they were in the past by default. There's a redesigned task manager, new touchscreen gestures and windows management features and tweaks for the start menu and task bar among other things. It also continues to replace old bits of Windows 8 and Windows 10 era UI, you know, changing some of those menus to have more rounded edges, kind of like, you know, the Explorer windows do. If you uh, compare it to Windows 10 and Windows 11, you see there's differences in how it presents and more of that's going to be trickled into other menus that maybe don't look the Windows 11 way yet. The 2207 update for Microsoft Endpoint Configuration Manager is now available with several enhancements, including improved manageability of automatic deployment rules or ADRs, granular control over compliance settings evaluation, enhanced control over the monthly maintenance windows, and improvements to the dark theme plus more. And I'll share a link if you want to read about all the new features in MECM. Microsoft shared a survey this week for those configuring time zones in the Windows out-of-box experience. And the survey is from the autopilot team, I believe. So that's kind of interesting, I guess. Maybe they're looking at making changes to the point of the process that time zones are configured. And finally, for this week's news, the call for speakers will open for the festive tech calendar next Monday. So that is the 22nd of August. They say that if you need inspiration on what to maybe submit, there are awesome submissions from last year that you can review. I had a blast. I loved presenting for the festive tech calendar last year. It's a really unique event. Uh, the keynote alone or the opening of the event on the first day of December is worth the free price of admission. So be sure if you're looking for a way to maybe provide recorded content for a unique event that's going to run through the month of December, this could be a really cool one to get involved in. And now this episode, scripts, tricks, and tips. Systemdeploy.com had an article on how you can automatically send a Teams notification when autopilot completes 
by using PowerShell and Azure Automation Runbooks, as well as webhooks available in Teams. So it's a really good idea. Uh, I use RPA at the moment for doing some automated processes, and the last action that I have the RPA run is usually sending out a notification via email, possibly with Teams using this webhook, or even sometimes I just use a toast notification and a ding sound. So cool idea. And if you're using autopilot, you should check this out. And kind of speaking about my automation processes, I've actually been working on a blog post around automation and automated desktop builds. Well, I happened to see this week that Jake Walsh uh, posted a blog on using Packer to create Azure machine images. So for mine, I was using just Azure ARM templates, some PowerShell and Automaze RPA. And it looks like Jake is kind of doing some of the same stuff that I'm trying to do, but using Packer. And I know that Owen Reynolds had a CUGC blog post where he was covering some Packer stuff too. It seems like Packer is popular in EUC, so it's one that I definitely want to check out. So thanks for the inspiration, Jake. Michael Roth shared on Twitter that the Microsoft Azure Virtual Desktop Landing Zone Accelerator is available and it provides a specific architectural approach and reference implementation for preparing landing zone subscriptions for enterprise AVD deployments. And it's got a really nice big network diagram related to AVD in the landing zone accelerator. So it might be a good one for reference. Jeff Brown shared a blog post on how to enable Office 365 license services using PowerShell. So this is one that I'm not necessarily that interested in for the Office stuff, but I'd be interested to try it with Windows 365 to see if I could uh, maybe assign a Windows 365 available subscription to a user using this method too. So thanks for sharing, Jeff. The awesome Jen Gentleman had a quick tip. Did you know middle clicking the refresh icon in Microsoft's Edge browser will open a copy of the website you're on in another tab? I did not, and that's awesome. And now I know, and you know too. The Mem Tips and Tricks YouTube channel has been posting a series of videos on PowerShell App Deployment Toolkit. So if you're not familiar with that and you wanna learn about it, this seems like a really great opportunity to follow this series. June Castellot blogged on adamtheautomator.com on how to leverage Azure AD Connect Delta Sync for faster syncs. So if you're using AD Connect and it's doing a full sync on a schedule, maybe think about switching to Delta Sync and you can follow this blog post. The great Guy Leach tweeted once again, something very useful. Uh, he gave a quick way to see file descriptions for all EXEs or DLLs in a folder with PowerShell and his example for the use cases for FSLogix. It's a one-liner, which I'm not gonna read out on the podcast. But if you're listening to the audio-only version, if you check out the YouTube edition, which you'll find at fivebytespodcast.com under the YouTube column for episode 243, you can see that in the YouTube video or just find it in the reference links. Denise, with no surname given, <laughs> uh, posted a novice guide to malware analysis. So if you're interested in learning the security side of things and malware analysis, this seems like a good place to start. Daryl Vander Pale had blogged this week on what challenges there are with AVD that you can kind of work around or 
get past by using Azure Stack HCI. And some of them are kind of more obvious things like, you know, data compliance, if you don't want to put certain sensitive data up in a public cloud or have it possibly be exposed to different regions that it shouldn't be in. Maybe you want to have something on-prem instead, also something like latency, but there's much more covered in this blog post, so check out the full list for yourself in this blog. And that's it for this week's episode of the podcast. Thank you all so much for listening.